0: His Eminence Nicholas Cardinal Wiseman, Archbishop of Westminster, was born of Irish parents in Seville, Spain, in 1802. In the year 1823, He was ordained priest and doctor of divinity and in 1850 created archbishop and cardinal. His eminence died in the year 1865. The ceremonies of Holy Week Considered in connection with history. Monumental character of church ceremonies. Records of the earliest ages. Midnight service. Symbolical power given to rites suggested by necessity. Recollections of the triumph of Christianity. Adoration of the cross. Procession on Palm Sunday. Adoption of the Trisegium under Theodosius. Recollections of the Middle Ages. rites once general here, preserved from total extinction. Connection with the Greek Church. Having considered the offices of Holy Week in their relations with arts, as well external, or in their outward circumstances, as internal, through their essential forms, the plan which I have laid down brings me to treat of them in their historical character, or as connected with various epochs or ages of past. Into this portion might most properly be said to enter the learning of my task, as it would seem to require a minute investigation of the cause and origin of each ceremony observed in these sacred functions. But I much doubt whether such particular discussions would lead to much practical benefit, and not rather, by the variety of subjects and arguments, produce some confusion and dissatisfaction. I prefer, therefore, a method more according with that which I have hitherto kept, of presenting more general views and classifying objects under heads which may be remembered and, when remembered, produce a wholesome impression. On hearing that I am about to treat of the historical value of these offices and ceremonies, perhaps many will be inclined to prejudge that I am anxious to prove them all most ancient and trace them back to the earliest times of Christianity. Whoever shall so imagine will be completely mistaken. If the Catholic Church, in all things essential of faith and worship, lays claim to apostolic antiquity, she no less holds a right to continuity of descent, and this, as well as the other, must be, by monuments, attested. When we cast our eyes over England and see in every part remains of ancient grandeur belonging to a very early age, raised lines of praetorian encampments and military roads, or sepulchral mounds with their lacrimals and brazen vessels, then in our search find nothing more Till many centuries after, noble edifices for worship, first somewhat ruder, then ever growing in beauty, begin to cover the land, we conclude indeed that it has long been peopled, but that the break of monumental continuities proves the later race to have had naught in common with the earlier but that a dreary waste of some sort must have widely spread and lasted long between them. Not so, on the other hand, is it with this city, in which an unfailing series of public monuments from the earliest times shows that one people alone have ruled and been great within it and guided its policy upon a constant plan. It is even thus... With the Church, which, in many and varied ways, has recorded its belief, its aspirations, and its feelings upon monuments of every age, in none more clearly than in her sacred offices. It would be unnatural to refer many of the rites now observed to the very earliest ages. What have joyful processions in common with the low and crooked labyrinths of the catacombs? How would the palm branch grate upon the feelings of men crushed under persecution, and praying in sackcloth and ashes for peace? These are the natural symbols of joy and triumph. They express the outburst of the heart when restored to light and liberty. They are forms of Christian lustration over scenes and places that have been defiled with previous abominations. One striking difference between the old and the new law seems to consist in this, that the latter was not content to form the spirit of the religious, but molded its external appearance to an unalterable type the Jewish nation might undergo any political modification, but the forms of its worship, its places and circumstances, its ceremonies and expressions, were ever to be the same. And yet, with this stiff, unvarying character, its worship was essentially monumental. The Paschal Solemnity was a ceremonial rite, acting dramatically and so commemorating the liberation of Egypt. The Feast of Pentecost reminded every succeeding generation of the delivery of the law. That of tabernacles celebrated the long sojourn in the desert. Later, new festivals were added to record the dedication of the temple under Solomon and its purification under the Maccabees, and the salvation of the people from the cruel designs of Imam. Many of the psalms, or canticles sung in the temple, were likewise historical or composed by David on particular passages of his life. But in all this we see no power of development, no expressive force which allowed the feelings and powers of each age to imprint themselves on the worship and characterize it in later times by the monumental remains of discipline and customs variable in each age. In the sense which I have spoken of the Jewish religion, the Christian worship is imminently monumental, as the very festivals of which we are treating do abundantly declare. And in addition to this, it has continued from age to age, both to institute new festivities as memorials of its varied relations with outward things, and to mark its feelings at particular seasons, in every part of its offices and prayers. The discovery of the cross under Constantine, the dedication of the Lateran and Vatican basilicas, and the recovery of the symbol of our salvation under Heraclius, are thus commemorated. In later times the foundation of institutes for redeeming captives, celebrated in a peculiar feast, records the miserable subjection of a great part of Christendom to barbarian tyranny, and festivals yet celebrate amongst us by the victories by which that power was broken and the West freed forever from its fear. When in 1634 Pope Urban VIII Discovered the relics of St. Martina and rebuilt her church, he himself wrote the hymns for her office and there deposited the last feelings of anxiety and the last prayers of the church for her liberation from the terrors of Mohammedan power. In like manner, will posterity commemorate each succeeding year in the hymn and lessons? appointed, for the 24th of May, the unexpected return of the venerable Pius VII to the throne of his predecessors after his long captivity. In the service of the Church of England, three or four historical events have been, I believe, recorded. The murder of Charles I, the restoration of his family, the arrival of King William, and the Gunpowder Plot. Each of these commemorations is more connected with political events than conducive to religious feelings. The last, perhaps, may be considered as rather tending to keep alive a spirit very different from charity and brotherly kindness. When the contests for the crown of Naples used to bring into Italy periodical incursions of French armies whose track was never marked by rapine and desolation, they were viewed in the light of a public scourge, and their removal was deemed a fitting subject for prayer. Hence, in the Missals of Lombardy at that period, we find a mass entitled Misa Contra Gallos. But no sooner was the evil at an end than the prayer was, in good taste and charitable feelings, abolished. The day perhaps will come when similar motives may produce in our country similar effects. But what forms a distinctive property of Christ's religion is that he left few or no regulations concerning external worship. He instituted sacraments that consist of outward rites, but left the abundance or parsimony of external ceremony to depend upon those circumstances or vicissitudes through which his church should pass and the feelings which they might inspire. It is this idea which my discourse of today is intended to develop, by representing to you the ceremonies of Holy Week as monumental records of various times and ages, each of which has left its image stamped upon them as they passed over. And thus, methinks, they will possess an additional interest as monumental proofs of the continuous feeling which has preserved as it embellishes them from the very beginning. The most important functions of Holy Week are referred to the common and daily liturgy of the Church and are joined to it as a base which they adorn for the time with records of events, by them commemorated. Palm Sunday has its blessings and procession only in preparation for the liturgy or mass, and its solemn passion is only the gospel adapted to the occasion. Thursday and Saturday present nothing peculiar except additional ceremonies before or after the same celebration. And Friday service is a modification thereof, peculiarly formed, to express the morning and the graces of that day. The substance, therefore, so to speak, or foundation upon which every age has placed its contribution, must form the oldest and most venerable portion of the service, and should in fact be as old as Christianity itself. And so, in truth, it is. For the Mass, whereunto, all the other ceremonial is mainly referred, is nothing else than the performance of the Eucharistic rite instituted by our Blessed Savior. It may be considered as consisting of two distinct portions, one essential and the other accidental. The first consists of such parts as are and must be common to all liturgies and comprises the offertory or oblation The consecration by the words of Christ, and the communion. These are all to be found substantially the same amongst all those Christians who believe the Eucharist to be sacrifice and to contain the real body and blood of Jesus Christ, for they occur in the liturgies of Latins and Greeks, Armenians and Copts, Maronites and Syrians, and moreover in those of Jacobites and Nestorians. Who have been separated from us since the fifth century. But to this remotest period belonging also many ceremonies which, though not essential for the integrity of the liturgy, are clearly traceable to the apostolic time. Such, for instance, is the prayer for the departed faithful, which is wanting in no liturgy of the East or West, the commemoration of the apostles and saints, the mingling of water with wine. The use of lights and incense, which have been severally acknowledged to be derived from the time of the Apostles, by Bishops Beveridge and Kay, by Palmer and other Protestant writers. Most of the prayers which constitute the present liturgy are to be found in the ritual of St. Gregory the Great, St. Celestine, Galatius, and other early popes, and may be supposed, consequently, to be still more ancient. I hurry over this period, both because I have lately had occasion to treat concerting it in another place, and because it is only remotely connected with the subject of these discourses. It was, however, necessary to say thus much, to show the groundwork whereupon the solemn functions of this season rest. For three centuries, the Christians lived in persecution and concealment. This naturally led to the selection of night as the fittest time for the celebration of their sacred rites, and caused the greater portion of the church office to be allotted to that silent hour. We might likewise expect to find whatever ceremonies retain the remembrance of this state, partaking of the symbolical and mystical spirit which such awful assemblies must have us inspired. Of this early period, monuments are not wanting in the offices of Holy Week. The very office of Tenebrae is, in truth, no more than the midnight prayer of that early age. It continued to be performed at midnight for many centuries, especially at this time, as appears from a very ancient manuscript of the Roman Ordo, published by Mabilon, in which it is prescribed to rise for them at midnight. Many centuries ago, the anticipation of time, now observed, took place, but the name and other terms were kept to record its earlier method of observance. The service itself was called tenebrae, darkness, and matins, or morning office, and each of its three divisions is styled a nocturne, or nightly prayer. Another monument of that early period may be found in the Mass of Holy Saturday. Throughout it, the service speaks of the night. It is the night in which Israel escaped from Egypt, and which preceded the resurrection of Christ the entire service, as I observed in my first discourse, refers to this joyful event and used to be celebrated at midnight. The rites connected with these primitive and solemn offices are, as I have intimated, singularly mystical. There have been two classes of writers regarding ceremonies. Some, like Duvert, have wished to trace them all to some natural cause. Others have wished to give them exclusively a symbolical and mysterious signification. It is probable that here, as usually, truth lies between the two extremes, and that while circumstances suggested the adoption of certain expedients, the faithful ever preferred so to modify them in application as to make them partake of that deep mysticism which they so much loved. Thus, no doubt, necessity as well as choice compelled them to use lights during those nightly celebrations. But they arranged them so as to give them a striking figurative power. In fact, Amalarius Symphosius, whom Benedict XIV confounds with Amalarius Fortunatus, a writer early in the 9th century, tells us that in this time the church was lighted up with 24 candles, which were gradually extinguished to show how the sun of justice had set. And this, he adds, we do thrice, that is, on three successive evenings. This shows the union, even at so late an epoch, between the obvious use of these lights and their mystical application. The present disposition of them on a triangular candlestick is, however, much older than his time, and has been preserved in a manuscript ordo of the 7th century, published by Mabillon. The connection between the rite and the hour in which these offices were originally celebrated may warrant us to consider both of equal antiquity. The midnight service of Easter Eve, now performed on Saturday morning, gives a similar coincidence and stronger authority for this connection. Before the Mass, new fire is struck and blessed, and a large candle known by the name of the Paschal Candle being blessed by a deacon is therewith lighted. This blessing of fire or light as a very ancient ceremony originally practiced every Saturday and apparently restricted to Holy Saturday on the 11th century. In the Roman Church, however, according to Pope Zachary, in 751, this ceremony was practiced on Thursday. These observations are but cursorily made. It is the benediction of the candle which is the principal feature of this ceremonial. The beautiful prayer in which the consecration or blessing takes place has been attributed to several ancient fathers. By Martene, with some degree of probability, to the great Saint Augustine, who very likely only expressed better what the prayers before his time declared. It very beautifully joins the twofold object of the institutions. For while it prays that this candle may continue burning through the night to dispel its darkness, it speaks of it as a symbol of the fiery pillar which led the Israelites from Egypt and of Christ's ever-true and never-failing light. But the rite itself is much older than that age. Anastasius Bibliothecarius says of Pope Zosimus in 417 that he allowed to parishes the power of blessing this candle. This, as Gretzer remarks, supposes the blessing to have existed before but to have been confined to basilicas. St. Paulinus speaks of the candle as painted according to the custom yet practiced in Rome, and Prudentius mentions its being performed in allusion, as Father Aravalo plausibly conjectures, to the incense which then as now was inserted in it. What still more pleads for the antiquity of this rite is the existence of it in distant churches. For St. Gregory, Nazianzen mentions it, as do other fathers in magnificent terms. This year, being the seventh of the pontificate of the present pope, you will have the opportunity of witnessing another very ancient rite only performed every seventh year of each reign. This is the blessing of the anu's Dei, waxen cakes, stamped with the figure of a lamb. It will take place in the Vatican Palace on Thursday and Easter week, and a distribution of them will be made in the Sixteen Chapel on the following Saturday. The origin of this rite seems to have been the very ancient custom of breaking up the Paschal candle of the preceding year and distributing the fragments among the faithful. Durandus, one of the eldest writers on church ceremonies, tells us that on Saturday in Holy Week, the acolytes of the Roman church made lambs of new blessed wax, or of that of the old paschal candle mixed with chrism, which the Pope on the following Saturday distributes to the faithful. He then enters upon their spiritual and mystical signification. Alcuin our countryman, and disciple of Venerable Bede, tells us that, quote, In the Roman church, early in the morning of Saturday, the archdeacon comes into the church and pours wax into a clean vessel and mixes it with oil, then blesses the wax, molds it into the form of lambs, puts it in a clean place. These, he says, are distributed on the octave of Easter. And, he adds, the lambs which the Romans make represent to us the spotless lamb made for us by Christ, for Christ should be brought to our memories frequently by all sorts of things. In the ceremony as you will witness it, the Pope himself will bless and mingle with Chrism the figures of the Agnus Dei already prepared. Another portion of the service which bears us back to those earliest ages deserves particular attention from its being now, like the past, peculiar to Rome. It is well known to all that have ever slightly applied themselves to the study of church history that a system of public penances existed of old, whereby such as had scandalously transgressed God's law were for a time excluded from the communion of the faithful and subjected to a course of rigorous expiation. This penitential system is acknowledged by all to have reached back into times of persecution, for we have repeated mention of it in Tertullian, the oldest Latin ecclesiastical writer, and we possess entire treatises or epistles of the glorious martyr St. Cyprian regarding it. The Catholic Church has everywhere preserved the ceremony whereby the public penance was enforced, to wit, on Ash Wednesday, so-called, from ashes having been on that day, placed on the public penitents' heads, as now they are on those of all the faithful, with the very same words, Remember that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. The course of penance thus enjoined, might last many years, but unless shortened by an indulgence or brought to a close, to a close upon danger of death or of persecution, the reconciliation of the penitents always took place within Holy Week. St. Jerome tells us that Maundy Thursday was the day fixed for this solemn absolution, and Pope Innocent the Firm confirms this observation. St. Ambrose, however, observes that the rites sometimes took place on Wednesday, Friday, or some other day in Holy Week. A remnant of this ancient custom has been scrupulously preserved here, for on the afternoons of Wednesday and Thursday, the Cardinal Penitentiary proceeds in state to the Basilica of Saints Maria Maggiore and Saint Peter, and seated on a tribunal reserved for that purpose, receives the confession or other applications of such as may wish to advise with him and obtain spiritual relief in matters reserved for his jurisdiction. Another, and a still more interesting usage of those primitive times, is yet retained in the Roman Church almost exclusively. In the early ages, baptism was solemnly administered only twice in the year, on the eves of Easter and Pentecost. The adult catechumens were carefully instructed in the Christian faith, although many important dogmas were withheld from their knowledge till after baptism. In Holy Saturday, or Easter Eve, they proceeded to the church under the guidance of the deacons who had prepared them. Twelve lessons from the Old Testament, descriptive of God's providential dealings with man, were then read in Greek and Latin, during which they received their first instruction in the faith. After this, the baptismal font was blessed with many solemn ceremonies. Thus far, the rite is universal to the extent that circumstances will permit. The lessons are everywhere recited or sung, and the font is blessed wherever the privilege of having one exists. But in Rome, the ancient usage is imitated to the end. for Solemn baptism is always administered to converts, who are reserved for that occasion, generally Jews, of whom a certain number yearly enter into the Catholic Church. This takes place in the baptistry of Constantine, adjoining the Patriarchal Basilica of St. John Lateran. Such are the principal points in the ceremonial of Holy Week, which can be traced with sufficient probability to the oldest period of the church, when she yet was in the humble and persecuted state, and they clearly bear the impress of her condition and feelings. The midnight assembly still commemorated both in her sacred offices and in the Eucharistic celebration, show the state of alarm in which she then existed. And the mystical signification given to institutions, in a manner dictated by necessity, exhibits the depth and nobleness of idea, which even then regulated her in her worship. The commemoration of that solemnity wherewith she received repentant sinners back to her peace is a record of the purity which distinguishes all her members and the zeal for virtue which animated her pastors. In fine, the rare and cautious initiation of her catechumens through the sacrament of baptism from danger or their betraying the secrets of religion is commemorated in the lessons, and still more in the actual rite as performed here on Holy Saturday. And thus, too, at Rome, there is a constancy in the entire office of Easter not to be found elsewhere inasmuch as the liturgy during which the following week prays most especially for those who have been just born again of water and the Holy Ghost, that they may persevere in the faith. And the Sunday immediately following Easter is still called everywhere Dominica in Albis, Sunday of the White Garments. As on it, the new baptized should lay aside the white robe put on them, by most ancient usage, on their baptism. And this reminds me of another ceremonial not quite so ancient, but still reaching to the 5th century. I allude to the custom of the neophytes after baptism going to visit the tomb of the Holy Apostles at the Vatican. And Odius of Pavia mentions this in a custom in his time. See, he observes, how the water chamber, the baptistry, sends forth its white robed troops to the portable chair of the apostolical confession. Under Constantine, the church gained freedom and the right to breathe, and still more the power of expanding her outward form and displaying all her beauty. To this period belong many of the functions of Holy Week, one or two of which deserve more particular notice. And first is the act of solemn veneration shown to the cross of Christ on Good Friday, known by the name of the Adoration of the Cross. Two things seem to deserve particular notice, the origin of the ceremony and the term applied to it. When Helen, the emperor's mother, discovered the cross of Christ in his sepulchre, we are told that it was exposed to the veneration of the faithful. From this moment the custom arose in the Church of Jerusalem, and from it spread so rapidly over the east and west as to become very soon universal. Saint Paulinius informs us that once a year the portion of the same cross preserved there was solemnly brought out, and that this was at Easter. And he defines the day more accurately by saying it was on the day which celebrated the mystery of the cross, that is, Good Friday. St. Gregory of Tours mentions the same custom. This rite was soon adopted at Constantinople, where a portion of the same cross was offered to the veneration of the faithful In the Church of St. Sophia, as Venerable Bede and other writers inform us. Indeed, the Emperor Constantine Porphyrogenitus has described minutely the ceremonies used on that last occasion. Leo Alatius has proved the prevalence of the custom among other nations in the East. Cardinal Borgia published a manuscript preserved in the Propaganda and written in Syriac entitled, The Rite of Saluting the Cross as Observed in the Syrian Church at Antioch. Two other copies of this ceremonial, formerly belonging to the Maronite College, are now in the Vatican Library and amply attest the prevalence of this rite in the Oriental Church. Neronus, himself a Syrian, has minutely described the ceremony as performed by the Maronites or ancient Christians of Mount Libanus on this very day. The ritual is entitled Order of the Adoration of the Cross and is prescribed to observe on Good Friday. The proclamation and prayers are nearly word for word the same as ours, and after them the cross is placed on a seat or cushion in the church and surrounded by two priests and two deacons who sing the trisagion, or thrice holy, before mentioned, just as you will find observed in the pontifical chapel. These exact conformity of rites and even of words in the liturgies of different countries is a strong presumptive argument of great antiquity. In fact, this rite seems to have been soon adopted in the Western Church, for we find it mentioned in the sacramentary of Pope Galatius, the most ancient existing, as approved and corrected by the learned Muratori. The antiphon now used at the ceremony is in the Antiphonary of Saint Gregory, and in it the Roman Order which Mabilon refers to that pontiff's time. What farther confirms the origin of this rite from the custom of the Church of Jerusalem is that the expressions used in it clearly refer to the true cross there preserved. Behold the wood of the cross whereupon our salvation hung. We have then clearly in this instance ceremonial expressive of the triumph of Christianity, of the exaltation of its sacred emblem above every other badge, a proclamation of the principle that through it alone salvation was wrought, the vindication of it from ignominy and hatred, which for three centuries had been its lot, and the paying of a public tribute of honor, love, and veneration to him who hung upon it, in reparation of the blasphemy and, in his disciples, persecution, wherewith he had been visited. All these are precisely the natural feelings of the age, which first saw Christianity not only free, but triumphant, and which, having discovered the very instruments of redemption, would have acted unfeelingly, if, like the murderers of our Lord, it had allowed them to be again thrown into oblivion, and had not displayed in their presence some of the affectionate sentiments inspired by the event which they attested. But I may be asked, why make this declaration of sentiment in so strong a form, and why give it so grafting a name as adoration? In fairness, I I should send anyone asking such a question, for his answer to them who first introduced the right, and with it the name. For, had we brought it in, since this word sounds harsh, we might, peradventure, deserve blame, as not having regard to others' feelings. But if a word changes its meaning, after we have adopted it, it would argue great weakness and fecklessness. If purpose in us to abandon it, as to suppress some extravagance in those who ask us to do it. For it is meet, on the contrary, that amidst the fluctuations and changes in speech, some landmarks should remain to ascertain the original meanings of words, which would not be the case if every use of them varied with them. Our lawyers and our statutes choose to preserve the old words of our language Even where custom has long since changed their meaning, when they speak of the season of an estate, to signify its lawful possession, or of letting a man do an action, when they mean to signify preventing it. As the dialect of law, so is that of religion, or rather, this is far more unchangeable, as are its purposes. And as the Church has chosen to preserve the Latin language rather than adopt the later tongues that have sprung up, so has she in this kept her words as she first found them and not altered them when men have given them new meanings. The same principle has prevented either change. Now, wherever the rite of venerating the cross of Christ has been introduced, it has ever borne that maligned title of adoration." Nay, I can show you that in the East and West this expression was used even when the hatred to idolatry was the strongest. Lactantius, or the author of a most ancient poem upon the Passion, thus exclaims, Flecte genu lignumque crucis venerabile adora. Bend the knee and adore the venerable wood of the cross. An ancient martyr is described by Bishop Simeon as thus addressing his judge. I and my daughter were baptized in the Holy Trinity and his cross I adore and for him, that is Christ, I will willingly die as will my daughter. This passage is from an oriental writer who surely would not have put into a martyr's mouth, about to die for refusing to worship idolatrously, words which savored themselves of that heinous crime. The Greeks used the very same word, for in the old Greek version of St. Ephraim, who was the most ancient Syriac father, and which was made, if not in his lifetime, very soon after, we find these words, The cross ruleth which all nations adore and all people. The word, therefore, signified veneration, and the rite must be more ancient than the modern meaning of supreme worship, which it now bears. And it would be as foolish in us to change the word because others have changed its meaning, as it would be for the Anglicans to alter the marriage rite, where the bride and bridegroom declare that with their bodies they worship one another, because the Presbyterians, or rather independents of Cromwell, would have worship paid to no man, or because in modern speech the word is restricted to divine service. But if anyone should prefer to give our word its ordinary meaning, I have no great objection, provided he will allow us, who surely have the right to determine the object towards which our homage and adoration tend, to wit, him who hung and bled and died upon the cross, and not its material substance. Nor would such a distinction savor of modern refinement and sophistry, seeing it as that of St. Jerome, who thus speaks of Paula in her epitaph, Prostrate before our Lord's cross, she so adored as though she beheld our Lord himself hanging thereon, the fathers of the seventh general council fully explain this matter and vindicate the words and forms in which this worship is at present is exhibited; thus, much has seemed necessary to prevent any of you being withheld by any mistaken feelings, from fully valuing this most ancient and venerable recollection of the first liberation of Christianity from the house of temporal bondage and its first erection of a public triumphant worship. To this same period, I think, we may safely refer the use of processions, especially that of Palm Sunday. For it, like the foregoing, is to be found immediately after, universal throughout the church. For in the East they have from the earliest ages practiced the ceremony of carrying the palms and oil branches to the churches on Lazarus Sunday, as the eve of Palm Sunday used to be called, and having them blessed the next day. At Constantinople, it was customary for the emperor to distribute the palms with great solemnity to all his courtiers. In Rome, it would seem, from old documents published by Mabalon, that originally the blessing of the palms for the papal chapel took place in a small church, called Our Lady of the Tower, Saints Maria ad Turum, from its being situated beside the belfry of the old Vatican Church, and that thence the procession moved and ended at the high altar of St. Peter's. It may not be out of place to mention that anciently the ceremonies of each day used to be performed in different churches with the Pope's attendance, and that the memory of this circumstance, unimportant as it may be, has been carefully recorded in the service. For To that of each day you will find prefixed the title of a church as the station of the day, that is, as the place where the pontiff and the faithful stood to pray. But for some centuries this custom has been disused, and all the functions have been reunited in the Vatican and its chapels. Martene has affirmed, that no trace of the ceremonies of this Sunday could be discovered in the Roman church before the 8th or even the 9th century. But this assertion has been fully refuted by Cardinal Tomasi, Meratus, and others. For the old Roman calendar published by Martene himself as belonging to the 4th or 5th century mentions the palms and the stations at St. John's. In the sacramentary of St. Gregory, the prayer mentions the palm branches borne in their hands by the faithful. This again is a ceremony strongly bearing, like the one before described, the signet of its age, beautifully characteristic of the seasons of triumph and preeminence which the Church had begun to enjoy and an apt record of that feeling in which it could take part in the glories of its acknowledged Lord as well as sympathize with him in his sufferings. In the service of Good Friday, we have a little fragment which belongs to a period somewhat later than the foregoing and betrays its origin by its language. This is the Trisagion, sung alternately with the Improperia, both of which I have several times had occasion to mention. The scripture has more than once recorded the song of the spirits, who stand nearest to God's throne as being an unceasing repetition of holy, thrice pronounced. This formula of solemn veneration the church soon adopted in her daily liturgy, where it yet remains. In the time of Theodosius, an epithet, was added to each of these exclamations, and a prayer for mercy at the conclusion. The Greek monology not only records this date, but gives a marvelous account of the origins of the Triple Invocation. It tells us that in the reign of Theodosius, the city of Constantinople was visited by a frightful earthquake and apparently a whirlwind in which a boy was caught and raised aloft in the air. The emperor and the patriarch Proclius were present, with an immense multitude, and cried out in the usual form of the supplication, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy upon us. The child came down safe, and called aloud to them to sing the Trisegion, or thrice holy in this manner. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal. He had scarcely finished these words when he expired. Whatever may be thought of this legend, there can be no objection to the date which it supposes, and certain it is that from that time it has often and often been repeated in different parts of the Greek ritual. Thence it passed into the office of Good Friday, where it is repeated both in Greek and Latin, another proof of antiquity, as it must have been admitted before the separation of the two churches by Photius. After this period, we begin to plunge into the obscurity of an age less distinct in its historical monuments. It becomes extremely difficult to assign the exact date of these ceremonies, which during it sprang up or to discover the authors of the beautiful canticles then inserted into the service. Yet this darkness is not without its interest, and powerfully attests the spirit of those ages in regard to religion. For a difficulty in ascertaining the origin of certain rites proceeds from the gradual and the almost imperceptible manner in which they were communicated from church to church. The love of dangerous innovation had yet appeared, and it had not been thought necessary to repress any manifestation of devout feeling which might accidentally spring up in particular places from an assurance that it would be innocence and strictly according with sound doctrine. In this manner, each great church came to have its own peculiarities, and if they were really worthy of the honor, were soon embraced, at least in part, by others. And so being sifted through the experience of ages, that which was best came to be universally kept, and the less perfect went into disuse till a certain uniformity was introduced. The same is to be said of the hymns and other compositions of the Middle Ages, as they were called. Beautiful specimens whereof have been preserved in the holy Week service, but here is an additional obstacle to our discovery of their origin. For, as in the former, there was no particular necessity for ascertaining the church from which any special ceremony was received, so here the modesty, or more Christianly to speak, the humility of the authors, led them to conceal in every way their names, so that while every everyone admires those sweet and often sublime compositions, such as are also the Dies Erie, the Stabat Mater, etc., hardly one can be attributed to its author with any degree of certainty. The causes of obscurity are thus shown to attest to the spirit of the age in the close communion and charitable bond without envy and jealousy of different churches and in the humility and true modesty of its saints and sages. But the functions and ceremonies of this period may be considered in another light, no less important and interesting as the remains of customs once universal or very general, but during those ages abolished, yet preserved monumentally in this particular season. In this manner, they are not institutions so much as fragments or remnants of old liturgical forms which would have disappeared entirely but for this care. Let us illustrate this view by a few examples. It is well known that, for several centuries, the communion was generally administered to the faithful under both kinds. Not, indeed, that this was at all considered necessary for the validity or even the integrity of the sacrament, for it would be easy to prove by many passages and histories that it was often given in only one form. Many circumstances, which it is not necessary to detail, conspire to induce the Church to adopt, in lay communion, the form of bread only. I will content myself with one circumstance, which seems to me worthy of notice, as an additional justification of the restriction after what has been repeatedly urged with success. The Christian religion is one for all times and all places, and its sacraments should be such as to suit this universality of its destination. Now there are numberless situations in which the faithful would be deprived of the Eucharist could it be lawfully and validly administered only in both forms. For instance, in the interior of China and Siam, with the neighboring countries almost always in a state of persecution, there are at least half a million of Catholics. "...not to consider the obstacles arising from a state of persecution to a cultivation which would betray its object and consequently defeat it, every attempt to rear the vine has failed in these countries, and the missionaries are obliged to depend for their sacramental wine on the small quantities which can, with risk even to life, be clandestinely conveyed over the frontier." after it has come from very distant lands. Nay, they are often especially in the interior for a long time unable to celebrate Mass on account of this difficulty. There can be no doubt that this multitude of poor afflicted faithful, standing more in need than others of spiritual nourishment, would have to live and die without the comfort of this sacrament if the partaking of both species were absolutely necessary. But to return, with the exception of a particular privilege granted to some sovereigns in their coronation, almost the only example of the chalice being received by any except the celebrating priest occurs in the pontifical mass on Easter Sunday when the deacon and subdeacon partake of the cup after the pope. But there is another observance connected with this matter which has been preserved only here one of the reasons which led to the restriction of communion to one species only was the accidents to which others was liable for communion being a practice even now and much more anciently of almost daily use in churches and on many occasions frequented by thousands it was almost impossible to prevent some portion of the consecrated wine being spilt, especially when received by the ruder sort. To remedy this inconvenience to some extent, the practice was introduced, probably after the sixth century, of administering the chalice through a silver tube, so that the cup being held steadily in the priest's or deacon's hand, and only the tube placed in the receiver's mouth, there would be but little comparative danger of an accident which the Catholic belief concerning the Eucharist must render particularly distressing. This tube was called a siphon. Calasius informs us that the abbot of Monte Cassino used to receive the chalice in this manner. Paul Valsius first discovered that this to have been the usual practice from its being prescribed in an old book of signs. Liber Signorum, extent in many Benedictine houses. Among the oldest rules of the Carthusians, contemporary with St. Bernard, we have this order in the 40th chapter, "...let no church possess any ornaments of gold or silver except the chalice and the tube through which the blood of our Lord is received." An old commentator on Tertullian mentions an inventory of the Church of Mainz, written nearly 800 years ago, in which are enumerated among the gold crosses and chalices six silver tubes used for the same purpose. The use of this tube has been gradually abandoned everywhere except in the pontifical mass celebrated by the Pope three times a year, of which one takes place on Easter Day. The custom of thus receiving the sacred cup often appears novel and strange to persons unaccustomed to it, but it is a matter of interest to the lover of ecclesiastical antiquity, who would not willingly allow old usages to be abolished, especially in their last hold and proper refuge. I will instant another point of ancient practice once probably common to every church but now hardly observed except in saint peter's the altars are everywhere formally stripped on holy thursday and remain uncovered until the following saturday during tenebrae on thursday evening each of the canons and other functionaries of saint peter's receives a species of brush curiously made of chip and after the office the entire chapter proceeds to the high altar where seven flagons of wine and water have been prepared. These are poured upon the altar, and the canons pass six at a time before it, rub it all over with their brushes, and after which it is washed with sponges and dried. St. Isidore of Seville in the 7th century mentions the custom of washing the altars and even the pavement of the church on this day in commemoration of that act of humility by which our Redeemer washed his disciples' feet. And Saint Eligius records in other terms both the practice of the motive. The Roman ordo, Abbot Rupert, and many other writers speak of this ceremony as commonly practiced, and many documents of the, of the Middle Ages show it to have been observed in Siena, Benevento, Bologna, and other churches. It was no less practiced in England, for the Sarum Missal thus describes it, quote, "'After dinner, let all the clerks meet in the church to wash the altars. First let water be blessed,' Out of choir and privately. Then let two of the most dignified priests be prepared, with a deacon and subdeacon, and two acolytes, all vested in albs and amices, and let two clerks bear wine and water, and let them begin with the high altar and wash it, pouring thereon wine and water. After a minute description of the prayers to be said in the course of ceremony, the rubric proceeds: quote, After the gospel has been sung, as at mass, the two aforesaid priests shall wash the feet of all in choir. One on one side, and another on the other, and then shall do the same mutually. Many prayers are then said, and another gospel read, during which it is said, the brethren brethren shall drink the cup of charity, charitatis autumn. In the many learned treatises written upon the origin of this ceremony, this curious union of two practices, elsewhere divided between morning and afternoon, has been overlooked, though it is the strongest confirmation of St. Isidore's interpretation against the objections of Duvert, Batelli, and others. In the Greek church, the practice is still observed as Leo Alatius has proved at length, as it is among the Dominicans and Carmelites. But almost everywhere else it has disappeared, except in the Vatican Basilica, where you may see it practiced on Thursday evening. These examples will suffice to show how the ceremonies of Holy Week as performed in the Vatican have preserved rites formerly very general in the Church but which would have been almost entirely lost in practice had they not been here jealously observed. There is another great historical point of which testimony has been recorded in these sacred functions and which therefore must not be passed over. This is the ancient union between Latin and Greek churches and the reconciliation after the latter's defection. Of the former, evidence is given In the use of Greek words and phrases in the liturgy. One instance, the Kyrie eleison, belongs to every day, and you have seen in the adoption of the Greek trisagion, a testimony peculiar to the service of Holy Week. Anciently, there were other instances, as, for example, the one to which I before alluded. When I said that the lessons of Holy Saturday intended for the catechumen's instruction used to be sung in both languages, Anastasius Bibliothecarius tells us that Benedict III had a book written in which were the Greek and Latin lessons to be sung on Holy Saturday. Babylon has brought abundant evidence of this usage which is mentioned by Alimarius about the year 812 and several other writers of the following centuries. Later it would appear that the double recitation was confined to the first of the twelve lessons, as otherwise the service would have been excessively long. We find indeed in the 11th century, the clause added to this rubric, "See, si dominus papa velit, if our Lord the Pope wishes it, and thus probably, by its not being often required, the custom gradually disappeared. The same may be said of the practice which formerly prevailed of singing the Epistle and Gospels in Greek as well as Latin on Good Friday. Both these observances were revived in the last century by Pope Benedict Thirteenth who was most studious and tenacious of ancient rites, but relapsed into disutitude after his time. However desirable it might be to have these old usages restored, I think these circumstances can hardly fail to strike the eye as strongly illustrating the historical view I am taking today of these offices and functions. For we see on one hand that the church has carefully kept all that she received from the Greek church in relation to the worship of him who cannot change. For whatever prayers she was used to recite in that language, she did not allow any feelings towards that her rebellious daughter and now bitter adversary to abolish. But such instruction as used to be received recited in that tongue, for the edification of strangers who spoke it and happened to be present, she allowed to drop, without any act of angry abrogation, into neglect, as no longer of use. When, however, the Greek Church and the Council of Florence was reunited to her and owned obedience to the Holy See, it was decreed that the Pope on solemn occasions should be served by a Greek as well as a Latin deacon and subdeacon, and that the gospel and epistle should be sung in both languages. This regulation has been ever since duly observed, as you will see on Easter Day, when two Greek attendants, vested in the sacred robes of their own nation, the deacon wearing the stole, as of old, about his left shoulder, and having embroidered on it the word holy thrice repeated, will sing those two portions of the liturgy in the Greek language and chant. This completes the history of the connection between the two churches. The old prayers once common to both and yet retained by us give evidence of former union. The silent abolition of the instructions given in that language attests the subsequent separation, and the rite prescribes to commemorate the reunion not only records that event, but by its continuance acts as a protest against the perfidy which violated the solemn stipulations there made, and proves the readiness of the Roman Church to keep up to all her engagements. The principle by which I have endeavored to show that the offices of the Holy Week, especially as performed in Rome, ought to be feud is consideration of them as monumental observances sprung up in different ages and accurately recording the condition and feelings of each. Nothing but a divine enactment can give to the external forms of worship an invariable character such as the great measure was bestowed upon that of Israel. Of any command or direction to give a specific ritual We have no trace in the new law. And the Church, ever true to the finest principles of nature, after prescribing all that was essential and necessary for the sacraments, allowed the instinctive and rational feelings of man to have their play, watching carefully over their suggestions that they should not lead to error or impropriety, and thus gradually formed its code of religious and ceremonial observances as every good constitution has ever been formed, from the development of sound fundamental principles through the experimental knowledge accumulated by ages. What is so wrong in doing? This, indeed, is a question which my next and last discourse will better give materials to solve when I speak of the influence which the offices of this week have exercised upon the social and moral world. But at present... I may safely ask, does the parallel I have just intimated suggest that it was wrong? Is it not that form of rule, political and judicial, in our estimation most perfect, which among us has risen in most ancient times and has retained upon and within itself the impressions and experiences of ages different in purpose and spirit? We love to trace our jury to the institutions of the Saxons. Our forefathers, for years, revered and demanded the laws of good King Edward. We abolish not easily the words and phrases introduced by the Normans. Though in speech no longer our own, the crier in our courts proclaims in French, and the king agrees to, or dissents from, parliamentary enactments in that language. Our law of treason one of the most perfect we owe to the Third Edward, and the rights of the subjects took all the time from John to William the to be fully developed. Every different state, every change in character, every variation of feeling, which successive vicissitudes produced in the nation, is to be traced, as upon so many monuments, in our laws, usages and public practices. The old oppression of the forest laws no effort has been able to cancel entirely from our code. In spite of modern ridicule, baronial rights and feudal practices yet attest our former constitution under their influence. The municipal characters of our cities from progressive mon- form progressive monuments of the development of power, which the burguers gradually attained by industrious commerce. Our guilds and companies yet record the spirit of religious confraternity, which originally suggested them. The universities have, almost in their own despite, preserved the forms, institutions, and practices of their Catholic founders. The Presbyterian rigor of certain religious observances is yet struggling with public good sense, to deepen the morose wrinkles which it once left, so as not to be effaced upon the frank, smooth brow of former generations. We have thus our history, our changes, our variable feelings throughout successive generations recorded on our public institutions. Would any one for a moment entertain the idea... That the whole should, at one foul swoop, be abolished, and a stiff, stark, Code Napoleon system of law be introduced, duly undivided into titles, sections, and articles, upon every possible subject, social and domestic, from the sovereign's rights to the clerk's fees for a certificate, all bearing the impress of only one's ages or one man's mind? Would not this be considered sacrilegious? Would it not be abolishing our history, disowning our fathers, abrogating our former existence, blotting out our monuments, and saying like a child whose fabric of cards has fallen, I will begin anew? A similar train of reflections I have wished to suggest respecting the offices and functions of Holy Week. I have represented these to you as an aggregate of religious observances gradually framed in the Church, not by a cold and formal enactment, but by the fervid manifestation of the devout impressions of every age, till they had acquired a uniform, consistent, and compact form. They have retained upon them the marks of that humbled and yet deeply mystical spirit which the persecuted Church necessarily possessed. They have preserved the expression of triumph and glory of its more prosperous condition. They have concealed in them symptoms of the modesty and charity of the later period, and they are dispositories of many relics of venerable antiquity, by yet keeping in observance rites once general, but now elsewhere abolished. In attending them, you may consider yourself as led by turns to every period of religious antiquity, and in the institutions of each, may commune with its peculiar spirit. They are, as a museum, containing the remains of every age, not arranged chronologically, but as the good taste that presided over the collections has suggested, their dispositions mingled in a happy confusion, which shows how well they harmonize with each other, and how completely the same spirit has presided over the institution of them all, to abolish them, to substitute a new, systematic, formal, and coldly meditated form, would be in truth a vandalism, a religious barbarism, of which the Catholic Church is quite incapable. There yet remains another view of these offices and ceremonies, more interesting and more important than any I have yet treated of, and this shall form the subject of my concluding discourse.